0: What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the (laughs) hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about?
1: Hi, I'm Danielle Petka.
2: I'm Mark Thiessen.
1: Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Never more apt than today. Mark, what the hell is going on?
2: Well, first of all, what we've got going on this week is there's a crisis in Ukraine. And so, as you remember, during COVID, occasionally we'll do a double header and bring you two podcasts in a week. And that's what we're doing this week. Today, we're talking sanctions with our dear friend, Marshall Billingsley, who was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff with me and Danny many, many moons ago and was the chief sanctions official at the Treasury Department. And so he has actually implemented these sanctions. We've got a guy who knows these sanctions and who can explain them in common English and what the Biden administration is doing right, what they're doing wrong. Unfortunately, more wrong than right, it seems, though they're getting better, slowly being dragged into better sanctions. And so that's first. And then second, later this week, we're going to have Fred Kagan on and for the Critical Threats Project. And he's going to explain to us what the situation is on the ground militarily, why the Russians haven't taken a major city yet. Kiev is standing strong. And so Fred's going to explain to us why that's happening and can the Ukrainians hold out and what's next on the ground militarily. So we got two episodes for you this week. But here's a commercial interruption from Danny.
1: I don't know how I got the job of being the commercial reader here, but folks...
2: Because you can't sell anything. (laughs) Including your ideas.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. (laughs) What an excellent commercial for our podcast. (laughs) That is... Here, here's Danny. She can't sell her but ideas. say, if but... <laughs> you want more of Mark
2: and Mark's brilliance and explaining to me why I'm wrong, then you should subscribe to this podcast.
1: That's exactly. All right. Well, I'll just repeat that then. If you want more of Mark's brilliance and occasionally my interpolations that are always asking Mark how he can explain to me what things mean, then you should subscribe. You should rate our podcast. You should share it with all your friends, with your family, with your enemies, with everybody you can think of. And if you have an extra moment, take a look at our Substack where we we have all of our show notes and our transcripts and a little summary of the podcast. Was that okay, Mark? That
2: was good. And the reason we're saying this to you now is because we've been advised by the geniuses who know how podcasts work that you're probably still holding your phone right now. <laughs> and then in five minutes, you'll have put down your phone. And so while you're holding your phone, you are more likely to push the button to say subscribe. So if I'm correct and you're still holding your phone, then please push the button. If not pick it up, please push the button and subscribe. (laughs) And now we'll get out of the commercial and talk about issues because that's really what you come here for.
1: And honestly, that's enough levity from us because this truly is an unbelievably serious matter. Like I think all Americans, we've been watching the Ukrainians with something akin to awe, watching them stand up to the Russians, person by person by person. The guts they have, the staying power they have, is just something else.
2: I love the video. I mean, there's been so many. This is the first smartphone war, and watching the video of the Ukrainian guy pull up to the Russian tank that's pulled over out of gas, and he said, "Hey, you guys need a to tow back to Russia." <laughs> And the and the and the Russian soldiers who walked into a Ukrainian uh, police station and said that they had run out of gas and could they borrow some gas and instead were arrested by the Ukrainian police.
1: You get the sense that Russians are asking themselves what they're doing. There. What the
2: hell is going on? What? Why the hell am I in Ukraine? Right. There were a couple of Russian soldiers who literally were being interviewed after they had been arrested. and They said we were told we were going on exercises. We didn't know that we were going into Ukraine, and they were as bewildered as anyone.
1: And you and I are completely digressing from the topic of sanctions, but one more point in that regard is... All of the Russian propaganda running up to the war was there have been these unprecedented aggressions against Russian-speaking, Russian ethnic nationals. Genocide. 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 That word was used. And all of a sudden, these Russians come in. They're being confronted by Russian-speaking Ukrainians. I posted a video. It was too long for my Twitter, but I've posted on my Facebook a video from a friend in Odessa just saying... I'm Russian speaking. I'm ethnically Russian. I've lived here in Odessa all my life. And why are you attacking me? Why are you hitting our hospitals and schools? You're not rescuing me. I'm not the enemy. I'm not a Nazi, as Putin says. Oh,
2: by the way, if you're a Russian living in Ukraine, then guess what? You're living in a democracy where the government answers to you and where the people could rise up and overthrow it if it doesn't work. So why would you want to be in Vladimir Putin's Russia, where you have no freedoms and no rights?
1: you have to go and kill innocent people it's absolutely true so let's talk a little bit about sanctions thomas jefferson said that there's an important tool i'm paraphrasing here needless to say there's an important tool between diplomacy and war and that is economic sanctions they've been effective in getting iran back to the negotiating table with the united states a couple times <laughs> We've been imposing new sanctions on Russia every single day. The Europeans have been imposing sanctions. The Germans have had a come to Jesus of unprecedented proportions. Olaf Scholz, the new German chancellor, stood up and he said, we are supporting imposing sanctions. We are going to up our defense budget to 2%, something that they were required to do.
2: I say, as the guy who wrote speeches for George W. Bush saying, please raise your defense budget to 2%, he couldn't convince them to do it. Barack Obama could not convince them to do it. Donald Trump convinced some of them, but not all of them to do it. Vladimir Putin did the job for us finally, got the Germans to increase their defense spending. It's so good for him.
1: Well, good for him. But the reality is that, again, most normal people are not really paying attention to which bank is being sanctioned, what companies are being sanctioned, what are the details of these sanctions that are being imposed. We understand that the Russians are being hit hard. But I think what folks need to understand is that, The president has a vast array of tools, and I mean truly vast, not only under existing law, but even under executive orders. He can crush the Russian economy, should he so choose, on his own, not even with the Europeans. And it has been really strange to watch the Biden administration pull its punches. Well, why are they pulling their punches, Danny?
2: Because they have unleashed 40-year high of inflation in this country— right? Gas prices are $1.15 a gallon higher than they were when President Trump left office. And I just went to the gas station the other day, and except for the lowest grade fuel, everything's over $4 now. 4.11 is the largest average we've ever had in this country, and we are going to go beyond that. And so why are we there? Because they launched a war on fossil fuels. When they came into office, they cut off the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have brought in 840,000 barrels a day, which would more than make up for the 538,000 barrels a day we get from Russia.
1: And we are Russia's single largest consumer.
2: Of gasoline. Of gasoline. Exactly. So they did that. They did $1.9 trillion in social spending disguised as COVID relief, which unleashed this massive inflation. It overheated the demand side of the economy and the supply side couldn't keep up, which means labor shortages, supply chain problems, and massive inflation. And so now we're in this crisis and instead of having a strong economy and low inflation, and okay, we Americans can absorb some pain if we have to to impose these sanctions. They're terrified of imposing any pain on our country because so, they've already imposed so much. Already, because they've already used up all the pain that Americans are willing to pay. If he, you know, he won't. He has not sanctioned oil and gas, which is Russia's number one export, the most important thing you can sanction to really cause harm to the Russian economy. And the reason for that is because he's afraid that he's going to raise prices at the pump, and he's going to have an even bigger blowout in the midterm elections. I'm sorry, that's not what leadership is about. That's not what we should be focused on. And if he imposes those sanctions and all of a sudden gas goes up to $5 a gallon, $6 a gallon- They're going to
1: blame Joe Biden, going to not blame Vladimir Biden. Putin.
2: It's the weakness tax. It's a tax on American weakness. Why is Vladimir Putin doing what he's doing? Because Joe Biden skedaddled out of Afghanistan abandoned our allies, projected weakness in the world, and he's weak at home politically. And so Putin looks and says, this is my opportunity.
1: So I think one of the things that people hear is that we're hiding behind the Europeans. And you've heard Mark and and me talk about the fact that Europeans are dependent on Russia for 40 percent of their energy supplies, that, for example, some years back, Almost overnight, Angela Merkel decided that they should shut down Germany's completely safe nuclear plants. And as a result, they ratcheted up their burning of coal and they ratcheted up their dependence on Russia. We did a podcast on Nord Stream 2. And, you know, this pipeline that enables the Russians to circumvent Ukraine is a footnote in all of this. What it does, though, is lay bare how Europe has been willing to facilitate, to enable Vladimir Putin and enable his chokehold on their energy supplies. Why don't they want to sanction oil and gas from Russia? Because they don't want to tell people at the end of February and the beginning of March, hey, we're really sorry, but you can't turn on your heat. You yep. can't cook your food. You're going to be cold in the house. You know, you're going to have cold water. That is politically disastrous. That's but of not course, going to
2: happen here because we're not as dependent as they are on gas. We're going to be paying more, but we'll, at least we'll but have But the it
1: Europeans in Europe. are talking about yeah. literally having shortages that will require brownouts if they lose their supply. That is such unbelievable, irresponsible leadership. Yeah. To make yourself not to be taken hostage, but to make yourself to hostage. Yes, to volunteer. To volunteer. Please take me hostage. And so, again, there are a lot of ways that we could tighten the noose around Putin's neck. This is what he cares about. You know, sure, he wants Ukraine. Sure, he thinks that Ukraine should be subjugated to Russia. But he also wants that $200 billion he's got reportedly stashed away. He wants the support of all of those oligarchs around him who he's facilitated in becoming billionaires multiple times over. He needs that. We need to get him this message, and we shouldn't be doing it in this drip, drip, drip fashion.
2: And by the way, who is the chairman of Gazprom, the Russian energy company? Oh, the former German chancellor. Uh, uh, Gerhard Schroeder. Gerhard Schroeder, Who
1: oh. notably has not resigned yeah. from the
2: board. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to talk about how voluntarily dependent they are on Russian mm-hmm. energy. Now, the good news is, is that in addition to agreeing to up their defense spending, Chancellor Scholz just announced that they're going to build two liquefied natural gas Terminals to receive liquidified natural gas exports from the United States. And so, you know, they're they're they've They've woken up. Well, Vladimir Putin has finally woken them up. Here's the thing: two weeks ago, Schultz was standing next to Joe Biden, wouldn't even say the words Nord Stream 2, yeah. would not commit to canceling Nord Stream 2 because they really didn't think Vladimir Putin was going to do it.
1: No, a lot of people and, and,
2: didn't. And and now he's done it. And now they've finally woken up. And uh, the hope is that this thing has really backfired on Vladimir Putin. But
1: But, there are a lot of people who are going to die
2: in Ukraine. But we've got to make sure that it backfires by imposing the most. The reason why you want to impose the most stringent sanctions is to get that message through now before he starts carpet bombing Kiev and killing thousands of innocent civilians and using thermobaric weapons. For people who don't know what a thermobaric weapon is, it's a gasoline-powered weapon that creates a vacuum and sucks everything around it into a vacuum and burns it to death. They use the weapons in Crimea, I believe, and they're bringing them into Ukraine now. We don't have time to slowly ratchet up the heat. We got to squeeze them now as hard as you possibly can and make it as painful as possible. And that's why we need to impose the most stringent sanctions we possibly can.
1: So in the interests of explaining all of this and understanding what it is that we can do, we as Mark mentioned, we had asked our old colleague, our former colleague, Marshall Billingsley, to join us. He is now a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He focuses on illicit finance and arms control. But prior to joining Hudson, he was the Special Presidential Envoy for Arms Control at the Department of State. Before he was at state, he was the assistant secretary of the Treasury for terrorist financing. So he has tons and tons and tons of experience on sanction. He knows exactly how tight we can tie this noose and how much slack there is left in the system. And
2: he knows how to tighten this noose because he's done it before. Here's our interview with Marshall. Well, Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Mark,
0: Danny, it's great to be with you guys again. It's been a while.
2: This is like a walk down memory lane for us. Like a back family the, reunion. A family reunion back to the SFRC lunch table where we talked about all this stuff uh, over lunch.
0: Well, and you just look back to the team we had and people like you, Mark, you went to the Pentagon, you were Don Rumsfeld's speechwriter, you went to the White House after that. We had Roger Noriega, an ambassador, an assistant secretary. We had um, Steve Began, who just finished as the Deputy Secretary of uh, State. And then we had Danny.
1: And then when there was Danny. <laughs> I know. It's sad. You know, I had to come to AEI. No one loved me. Oh. <laughs> so, Marshall, you have been, if I may say, on fire on Twitter. You've really been out there much more. It looks like you just joined. Did you just join Twitter?
0: Yeah. Well, I had a State Department account. I had my own personal account with even a blue check mark, believe it or not. But State Department freaked out when the transition happened and demanded that I hand that over to them. So I did. So I had to restart.
1: Well, good for you. And you've been tweeting a lot about what it is that the United States and Europe have been doing in response to Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Really right. outstanding analysis of the sanctions. And it's hard to keep up, I think, for most people, even for people inside the Beltway. But how are we doing? Last week, you were pretty disappointed. You put up a pretty excellent checklist of the kinds of sanctions that needed to be in place, and you expressed some disappointment, not just with the Biden administration, but with the Europeans, about the breadth and depth of sanctions. A few days has passed. How are we all doing?
0: We're doing better, but we really could be doing much, much better. You see, the problem we have and why I've been so critical of the administration's actions to date is that time is against us we're dealing with a barbaric aggressor. I mean, people tend to forget what Vladimir Putin did to the Chechens in Grozny just a few weeks after he took power. He flattened that entire city, and we're starting to see the same thing in Kharkiv, in the city in the West that's put up a fierce resistance. And I'm worried, very worried about what he may do to the capital of Kiev in the coming days, as they really have almost all already circled Kyiv, if they start just flattening buildings, the the loss of innocent life will be huge. And so that's why I've been pressing for much more aggressive, overwhelming sanctions on the Russian economy, which the Biden administration has been unwilling to do and has not done to date. But credit where credit's due. The actions that they finally took today, which involve some elements of cutting off the Russian central bank, it's a step in the right direction, but they still could do a lot more.
2: So talk to us about oil and gas. So the number one export that Russia has is oil and gas energy. And the Biden administration not only has not been willing to sanction that, but he said in his speech announcing sanctions the other day, specifically designed the sanctions to, quote, allow energy payments to continue. And he keeps talking all the time about how I'm going to make sure to limit the effect of any sanctions on the pump. It seems like he's more concerned about the midterm elections than he is about stopping Vladimir Putin.
0: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, this White House is viewing everything through the lens of the midterms, the fact that their poll numbers are in the basement and the price of the pump is going sky high. I think another factor that's affecting them is the Europeans have been very, very clear that they don't want to touch their oil and gas imports. And so when you actually unpack the sanctions announced today, The administration explicitly issued a waiver to let the oil and gas trade go forward unimpeded. And even more bizarrely, they've lumped in things like timber exports, wood, as also allowed, because I guess you can make coal or charcoal out of them, I guess.
1: So, okay, they've done better than they did at the outside. They seem to have some momentum. Mark and I were talking about the fact that Switzerland joined in to impose the same sanctions that the European Union did, given how much Russian money is in Switzerland, that's probably a great thing. But there are these huge loopholes, and they're not just about oil and gas, as Mark was discussing, they're also on individuals. So people may remember that we had Vladimir Karamorza, who was a Russian dissident on the podcast, and he He is very close to and a champion of Alexei Navalny, who I'd say is Putin's most feared pro-democracy opposition leader. They've tried to kill him. He's now in prison in Russia. But when he was arrested, Navalny put out a list of 35 people who were the people who were most important to Vladimir Putin. They are his financial cronies. They are his political cronies. They are the backbone of his network. Sanctions have been imposed on almost none of them. How do we get there? Is it just too complicated a process? Marshall, you know, you were at Treasury. Is it really hard to sanction individuals like that in a sort of a rapid fashion?
0: It's not hard to do it. The reason that the Treasury Department really shies away from going after the big fish is that these oligarchs who are the massively wealthy ones, which are the ones you actually want to target. And these are ones that have amassed their fortune often by literally killing off all of the competition in the given economic sector that they dominate. The problem is that they get so big and their empires are so far flung that it's difficult to predict when you sanction that oligarch and any company that he owns 50% or more of, you may wind up with a whole bunch of unforeseen consequences. But let me come back to something that Mark mentioned about the fact that this administration continues to avoid anything that might touch the oil and gas sector. The problem is what they're doing, they're undercutting their own stated objectives by how they're going about this. Their stated goal is to cause the central banks, so think of like the Federal Reserve, they're trying to undercut the central bank's ability to keep the value of the ruble propped up because so they don't want to run on the banks, et cetera. And so what they say they're doing is they're complicating the effort of the central bank to do that. But when you allow the oil trade to go forward, what you're doing is you're allowing the thing that keeps the Russian government funded and the central bank flush with hard currency to continue unimpeded. So Russia's been running a a big, hefty trade surplus, right? They make more money exporting than they spend money importing. And they've got a huge war chest built up of 640, maybe $680 billion that's sitting there that they're gonna use to fight back against the inflation and the devaluing of the ruble that's now happening. And they make more hard currency because they have three different kinds of taxes that they impose on hydrocarbons. So in addition, the price per barrel of oil keeps going up, they're making even more money. And it's this that's funding the war machine. So it really, if the goal is to cause A financial collapse, which it should be in order to get Putin to stop, then by allowing the oil sales to continue, you're simply prolonging this pain and misery and process. And frankly, it's going to be counterproductive for the Democrats because they're going to prolong this right up into the elections.
2: So let's talk a little bit about the SWIFT banking system, which most people have not heard of, or if they have, they don't quite understand it. First of all, I mean, if you could just explain to people, what is the SWIFT banking system? And then the Biden administration was incredibly hesitant about doing the SWIFT sanctions. They kept making excuses, well, the Germans and the Italians didn't want to do it. And as I recall, you, when you were in the Treasury Department, implemented SWIFT banking sanctions on Iran without the approval of the Europeans. I mean, do we need the approval of Europe? To use the Swift system against the Russians, and why is Biden so hesitant and being dragged into any of these Swift sanctions?
0: Yeah, it was pretty funny. The president himself threw the Europeans under the bus, saying that we weren't going to try to de-Swift the Russian banks because the Europeans didn't want to do it. And then within a day, all of the Europeans had come around to saying, "Yeah, let's do it," leaving the Biden administration as the holdout. Um, <laughs> you know. So, and good on the Germans for shifting gears.
1: Oh, for manning Again. up. Let's put it honestly. Yeah,
0: exactly. You're not allowed to say that anymore, Danny. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, it is really impressive, the the total change that's happened with Olaf Schultz taking over from Angela Merkel. But let's talk about the SWIFT system. So it's not a bank. It's not a money doesn't transfer through SWIFT. What SWIFT does, SWIFT is an organization. It's a private sector organization that is paid for by all the big banks. And they provide a service to, I think it's around 11,000 banks around the world. And what that service is, is it's basically the internet for banks to communicate with one another and to send secure messages back and forth, put this amount of money in this account and debit it from this account because over here is the sending bank and they're gonna do the same. It's the way you balance the books for trade as banks then separately move the funds to one another.
2: So why is it important?
0: Well, it's important because if you get stripped out of it, if you no longer can send or receive those messages, you basically are cut out of the trading business. And so all of your clients, let's say you have Gazprom as a client, you're no good to them because nobody can understand what they need to do to debit or credit Gazprom's accounts. So it's a very, very effective way of bringing a bank to its knees And unfortunately, the Biden administration has refused to cause SWIFT to wholesale exit the Russian banks. They are continuing to allow a number of Russian banks to use the SWIFT messaging service. And Mark, you're right. Why is that? Is it because of oil
2: and gas payments?
0: Yeah, it's for oil and gas. I think that's pretty clear. When they gave the waiver for everybody to keep doing business with the Central Bank of Russia, they actually listed out the banks that you could do oil and gas trade with.
1: So, Marshall, one of the things that's most interesting to me when you start looking at what somebody yesterday referred to as the Swiss cheese of SWIFT and banking sanctions is... Which is is
2: unfair since the Swiss are finally helping with the sanctions, (laughs) right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We shouldn't shouldn't be using them in a derogatory manner.
1: (laughs) We shouldn't, but I will say for the most part, it's usually accurate. The Swiss are usually the weak link. But... Let's talk about Sberbank. So Sberbank is the largest bank in Russia. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, again, we can have these nerdly talks, but for folks to understand, there are a whole variety of sanctions you can impose and that the United States and Europeans have the power to impose. One of them is referred to as total blocking sanctions, right? And that means exactly like what it sounds like. Others are kind of weaker. You know, oh, we're not going to put blocking sanctions on you, but we are going to limit your ability to borrow money long-term in order to finance. So, for example, in the case of Sberbank, the largest Russian bank, they are not being subjected by the U.S. to total blocking sanctions. In addition, right... In addition, the only sanction that is on them is, in fact, one that limits their ability to borrow money long term. So they can only borrow money for a couple of weeks. That drives up the cost of money to them. It's not a pleasant sanction, but it's certainly not devastating. Marshall, you answered Mark and you said part of the reason is to enable oil and gas payments. But I think there's another dirty secret about Spare Bank, and that is that a lot of US pension funds and US investment banks own a piece of spare bank, and they don't want it to be sanctioned. So talk a little bit about this bank and why we need to be
0: tougher. So, Danny, I think you're right. I think the presence of the Russian banks in the U.S. market is significant. And they did not impose, as they say, full blocking sanctions on Sparebank. They did on the second largest bank, VTB. What they did do, though, in addition, which is a good, again, half step, is they put a prohibition on SpareBank being able to do any correspondent banking relations. So no U.S. bank can now have a correspondent count with spare Bank, which will over time greatly diminish that bank's ability to support its clients with business in the U.S. And then they also, you can really get nerdy on this stuff, but they also prohibited these payable through accounts, which is equivalent to, you know, if you've got a a spare bank client in Russia, certain U.S. banks would allow that same client to stroke a check with that bank as the creditor. And so that is also now prohibited. Again, the actions against spare bank are, they're not meaningless, but they're just not going as far as they could. Every step of the way the Biden administration is at best leading from behind. At worst, they're reluctantly following.
2: So, Marshall, you were in charge of sanctions in the Treasury Department during the Trump administration. And you guys put incredibly effective sanctions on Iran that did not have widespread support among our European allies, but they were kind of forced to go along with it. Lay out for us what we should be doing. If America was really leading and really determined to squeeze Putin's government, what are the steps that we should be taking, either unilaterally or with allies, and which of those steps has the Biden administration done? Which ones have they sort of dragged their feet on and not done?
0: Let's start with the two that they've largely done. They did put personal sanctions on Vladimir Putin. And on the one hand, that's pretty symbolic because the guy has been hiding his money under oligarchs around the world for decades. And I'll tell you, if we could have found his money in the Trump administration, we would have gone after it. He's got good accountants and lawyers. But the symbolism of the sanction on Putin is significant because now he joins a very short list of other dictators, the likes of which are Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela and Assad in Syria and then Mugabe from Zimbabwe days. So it's a pretty distinguished list of deaths that Putin has now been added to. They also have slapped export controls on the Russians, which also is good, although there's loopholes in what they just did as well. But over time, those export controls, and again, over time, time which I would argue we don't have, but over time, depriving Russian industry of US technology is gonna make these companies far less competitive. In addition, they brought in the sanctions that we had already in place on how the Russian government and now certain state-owned enterprises in Russia, which is basically the Russian economy, they basically can't access US markets to raise money through bond sales. So you no longer can not only not buy Russian debt, Russian bonds, you can't even trade in the secondary market with those bonds. So that's good because that is again, over time, going to cause some real problems for Russian companies raising capital to expand their business operations. So those are on the good side. In terms of the half measures that they've taken, as we've talked about, they put the sanctions on the central bank today. and that is going to cause a lot of market confusion because they basically said no U.S. person can involve themselves in any transaction involving the central bank. Technically, the Russian central bank is involved in every cross-border trade, you know, multi-currency action. So it's going to really come down to how compliance officers interpret this. And we may see an overreaction in a good way in the sense that the market may stampede away from buying and selling certain commodities that come out of Russia. The de-swifting, as we and to just finish on central bank, I guess they should have sanctioned the whole thing. I mean, they should have left no ambiguity, no dealings whatsoever with the central bank. Full stop. Period. That includes the oil and gas trade. But they they didn't. The same on SWIFT. They should have de-swifted. And I'm not talking about sanctions on SWIFT because that would be catastrophic for the financial system. But basically going to SWIFT and saying, you gotta unbank, you gotta unenroll all of these Russian banks. And what they did was they unenrolled a few of them. We also should be doing, Mark, as you talk about the things we did very effectively against Iran, they should be implementing sectoral sanctions. In other words, broad sanctions against entire categories of commodity or business activity. So you can impose sectoral sanctions on all Russian financial institutions, and they should. To date, they've cherry-picked, and while they have sanctioned some of the biggest banks, whether full blocking or not, when you look at it, what you see is that they've sanctioned five banks, okay? Four of those five are state-owned. And in fact, the Russian government dominates the banking sector in Russia through state-owned enterprises. So you have Gazprom Bank, right? Owned by Gazprom, which is owned by the Russian government. So the Russian government owns and controls all of these banks already. And when you only single out and sanction one particular bank, guess what? The Russian government overnight can move the assets. It becomes a shell game. They just restructure and reorganize to get around your sanctions. We saw them do that in the case of Venezuela sanctions, for instance, where they basically set up a brand new bank overnight to do the Venezuelan oil trade out of the VTB bank so that we wouldn't go after VTB. We'd have to be limited and target that new Russian state-owned bank. So they do this, and the Biden administration is falling into the trap of being forced to play whack-a-mole when they could simply just go after the entire sector. But again, back to that point on how the central bank raises hard currency to now, in in this case, fight off the effect on the ruble, which is what will get the Russian people out into the streets, is when your life savings evaporates because the ruble just took a nosedive. Outside of the oil and gas trade, there are a number of other sectors that should be sanctioned as well, like what we did, for instance, to Iran by prohibiting trade in copper, as an example, or prohibiting trade in automobiles. In the case of Russia, you would want to prohibit the minerals and metals trade. That'll bite us a little bit because our aircraft industry, for instance, needs titanium, and Russia's one of the big suppliers, but it's not the only supplier. So prices will go up if you do that, but you would have a real effect on Russia's balance of trade, which means you would really speed up the pace at which inflation and the inflation spikes and the ruble drops, which is what you've got to do here. If you're going to get the Russian people out in the street and if you're going to get the Russian leadership to potentially turn on Putin, or at least say to them, flat, you're taking us into the abyss here, you have to do these kinds of actions.
1: So my exit question, and you've been super generous with your time. I know you're really in demand these days, which is wonderful. But my exit question is this. One of the things that is also going to enable the Russians to survive long term is that even as the West and the United States turn on their financial institutions, disable their ability to export by virtue of closing airspace, closing sea lanes, and closing the ability to transfer money to pay for those things, they've got the whole, dare I say this, the whole axis of evil to rely on. So they've got the Chinese who can facilitate banking for them. They haven't imposed any sanctions, right? They've got other folks in the Middle East who can facilitate. Shouldn't we be also thinking about imposing secondary sanctions on banks that are trading with those banks in defiance of the rules in Europe and the United States?
0: Absolutely. You're so right. Those secondary sanctions are essential if this is going to work because you have to be able to go. You don't even go to the government in Beijing. You go to the individual bank and you say to them, as I did in the context of both Iran and Venezuela, you know, look, you're free to continue to transact with this sanctioned entity over here, whether it's a bank or it's a company or a commodity, you're free to do it but you should make an informed business decision because if you trade with them, you will not trade with the United States. We will put sanctions on you and you will be cut out of the U.S. financial system. And that is an incredibly powerful tool for dissuasion that the Treasury can use when it's allowed to. Unfortunately, I just don't see the leadership being exhibited here. And as a result, China is going to step in and blunt some of the effects, they don't have an unlimited capacity to, for instance, buy up all the Russian debt that nobody can trade in now, but they do have the capacity to blunt some of what we're doing, and they certainly will help. And we've not put the loaded gun on the table as a deterrent. One other point, Danny, as you talked about China, this is also an existential issue here with regard to Ukraine. Chairman Xi is watching what we are doing very, very closely and making his own calculus as to invasion of Taiwan. So how we proceed and the speed and determination with which we act or fail to act is gonna inform the Chinese timetable for aggression against that independent country.
2: So my exit question, and I'm going to take you back to your days as a arms control staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. One of the issues in play here with Ukraine is that Ukraine was, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the third largest nuclear power in the world, 2,000 strategic mm-hmm. nuclear weapons, intercontinental ballistic missiles, strategic bombers, and all the rest of it. And they gave all that up in exchange for an agreement that was signed by the United States Great Britain and Russia and Ukraine, that Russia would respect its territorial integrity and that the United States, if that territorial integrity was ever threatened, the United States and Great Britain would aid it in that effort. So now we're being called, Russia is violating its territorial integrity, and we are, through these sanctions and also our support for Ukraine militarily, are trying to aid them. If this fails,
0: what does that mean for nuclear nonproliferation? Well... I'm glad the Ukrainians did go ahead and give up their nukes. They're not. (laughs) No, I know. I mean, I think if you see it from the Ukrainian lens, they're sort of, but frankly, shame on all of us for believing anything the Russians commit to because they lie, they cheat on every last agreement we've had with them the only treaty that they haven't broken, at least in the arms control world, the current Obama-New START treaty, and the only reason they don't cheat on that one is because it doesn't actually put any meaningful limits on the Russians. But every other agreement that has ever had a limitation on the Russians, they violated. They violated the Helsinki Final Act when they attacked Georgia. When they are occupying the Republic of Georgia, they did it again in Moldova. They've done it again now in Crimea, and they're doing it again with the rest of Ukraine. The UN Charter, they violated. The Vienna documents, they violated, they violated the Open Skies Treaty by prohibiting overflight of their military exercises. They violated the INF Treaty, the Conventional Armed Forces. It's just, it's a laundry list. The nuclear test ban uh, promise they made, they're doing nuclear testing, clandestine testing. The Russians are habitual, congenital liars when it comes to this stuff. And you should never pin the security of your country on a deal with Vladimir Putin.
2: Well, that's good advice for President Zelensky right now as he's negotiating with Vladimir Putin's government on a peace deal.
0: Amen, right? Amen.
1: Don't trust, verify.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or don't even bother.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't have the same ring to it, but you're totally right. Hey, Marshall, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's great to be back with you guys. Look forward to catching up in person soon. All right. Yeah, thanks again.
2: So, Danny, we're buying 538,000 barrels of oil a day from Russia. Even in the midst of this, President Biden has kept that spigot open, and that is $53,800,000 a day. That's $1.96 billion a year that we are giving to the Russians in hard currency, which they are using to buy bullets and weapons and tanks and other things that they are using to slaughter the Ukrainian people putting aside the efficacy of sanctions in terms of the effect, it is just immoral for us to be funding the Russian war machine, all because Joe Biden doesn't want gas prices to go up.
1: And I think you don't have to believe Mark and me about this. Of course, I know you do, but you don't have to. Go back to the press conference that the president gave last week on Thursday. He gave a presser. He was very vehement in his rhetoric, standing up strongly against this aggression by Vladimir Putin against Ukraine. But one of the things that he emphasized and that he made a point of emphasizing was, we are imposing sanctions, but we don't want those sanctions to hurt the American people. Now, none of us want sanctions to hurt the American people, but who put us in a position where sanctions could hurt the American people, where we were vulnerable? This is where I think the Biden administration has made a big mistake, and. The day this podcast comes out, the president is going to be giving his first State of the Union address. And I am sure, but keep your ears open, I am sure he is going to go on at length about how these economic measures that we're taking against Vladimir Putin aren't going to hurt Americans. And by the way, what
2: weakness does that project? When Vladimir Putin hears that, what are they... I mean, it's just pathetic. All he hears... It's a
1: midterm strategy. It's
2: like literally all he (laughs) hears is... Joe Biden doesn't have the political support back home to see this through on me. And look, here's the thing. If gas was $2.38 a gallon the way it was on the day Joe Biden took office and our sanctions would raise it to $3.50, $4 like what we're paying now, I think a lot of Americans would say, "Okay, I get it. Short-term pain. Short-term pain. Everyone's looking and seeing these heroic Ukrainians standing up to Vladimir Putin and saying, you know what, for a short time, I'm willing to pay that price. That's my way of supporting this cause. These people are risking their lives. The least I can do is pay a little bit more at the pump. But when you're already paying $4 a gallon and all of a sudden it's going to be five or six. And you're suffering
1: under 7% inflation. And
2: your paycheck is being eaten away because of 40-year high inflation because of the president's policies. Then all of a sudden, maybe you're not so willing to do that. And so we love foreign policy in this podcast, but we talk about economic policy. One of the reasons we do is because they're intertwined. The massive COVID relief spending that they did is terrible for our economy. It's done terrible things. It's also weakened us in the international stage. It's weakened our ability to counter Vladimir Putin's aggression. All of these things matter, not just for America, but for the world.
1: No, I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's so much more we can do. And the thing is, it's not necessary that everything we do cause Americans to suffer either. There are things that a government with some imagination would do. For example, what about all those oligarchs and their kids who are going to school in America? What about all those oligarchs and those Russians who are facilitating Putin who have green cards? What about measures like that? Why don't we see the government cracking down on things like that? There are other things, too. Our friend uh, Senator Rob Portman is going to be introducing a bill that will deny Russia. It's another acronym. Sorry, guys. PNTR. All that is is what used to be called most favored nation status. All that means is that
2: PNTR is permanent normal trade relations.
1: Right. Exactly. And so all that means is lower tariffs for Russian goods. But Russia doesn't have a right to lower tariffs. What we should do is we should impose higher tariffs on the Russians because they're costing us money. So why not take away PNTR from Russia? All of these things. I think it's an excellent idea from Senator Portman. But I also think that we need to bring a lot more imagination to this. Yes, this is a globalized world. Yes, we understand that it is very hard to segregate out a country like Russia, let alone a country like China. But at the same time, with a little imagination and a little courage, we can begin to disengage ourselves from these terrorist tyrannical regimes. Stop enabling them. Stop financing their adventures abroad. Now We really could do that.
2: And just in closing for me, picking up on one of the things Marshall said, Xi Jinping is watching this, right? You think Ukraine is bad? Imagine what it's going to be like if the Chinese invade Taiwan. Now, maybe they will be deterred by the courage of the Ukrainians and they might think twice their idea that they could just march over Taiwan and destroy it and that the Taiwanese will roll over.
1: I don't know. And but- maybe they'll think we're just a little stretched here in the United States exactly. and can't face up to it and now's a good time. That's exactly right. But they're watching this and they're looking.
2: I said, what does Vladimir Putin think when he hears Joe Biden say in his speeches, we're going to make sure that we're going to lower the impact on Americans and you're not going to pay more of the pump? What does Xi Jinping think when he hears that? He hears that America doesn't have the stomach to deal. We can't even take a little pain on Ukraine. Are we going to take it on Taiwan? You're darn right we're not. So we have to stop projecting weakness in the world. I don't know. I mean, I feel like a broken record on this, but weakness is provocative. Weakness causes people to test our resolve, and then we have to prove our resolve. We wouldn't have to prove our resolve if we projected strength and deterred them from testing our resolve to begin with. So let's handle this in a way that deters China as opposed to enabling China and encouraging China to take a stab at Taiwan.
1: Well, we'll have a verdict on that on our next podcast this week because we will have heard the president give his State of the Union address and we'll have a sense of what exactly Joe Biden has chosen to project about the state of America in 2022. With that, Thank you guys for listening. Don't hesitate to share opinions, suggestions, comments, anything you'd like. And we'll see you again later this week.
2: And if you're still holding your phone, hit the subscribe button. <laughs> Talk to you later this week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at ai.org. Or you
1: can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C.